as I've done the last few times, we're going to be talking about the history of the church. I don't have a text as such, but we will be referring a few times to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Because the, the history of the church, it's important to understand the history of the church. Because it turns out that neither the Satan nor us are very imaginative. Satan keeps doing the same things over again. He has the same tricks, the same ploys, and he keeps on using them because we keep falling for them. And when it comes to ways to make a mess of things, ways to blow up churches and ways to destroy our testimony for Christ, it turns out there's very little imagination with us. We keep making the same mistakes over and over again. Which is why it's useful to understand the history of the church. Because over 2,000 years, we've already made almost all the mistakes. And if you are familiar with the last time we made this mistake, there's a chance we might see it coming. And so tonight what we're going to be thinking about is what was happening in the church between roughly about 1100 and 1500. These are the centuries leading up to what we tend to call the Reformation. The Reformation is usually dated as starting in 1517 with a man called Martin Luther. And then the Reformation is the event that gives rise to all the, the Protestant churches. So before the Reformation, there is no, there is no Presbyterian church, there are no Baptist church, there is no Church of Ireland church. Before the Reformation in Europe, there's really more or less only one church. The Catholic church. And instinctively, you're going to say, yes, well that's, that's the Catholic church, that's somebody else, that's, that's the bad people. But if you want to understand what's going on in that period, you have to understand two words. First is the word Catholic. You see, we tend to think of Catholic as just one more version of Christians. I'm a Baptist, he's a Presbyterian, she's a Catholic. But the word Catholic is actually a very different kind of thing. The word Catholic literally means universal. The Catholic Church is the whole church. It is the real church. For a thousand years of church history, you have all the heretics and the man-men and the crazy people, and you have the Catholic Church, the genuine church, the real thing. If you read the early years of church history, when they talk about the Catholic Church, that's the real church, because that's what the word means. All the Protestant churches have always said that we are part of the Catholic Church. If you're in the Church of Ireland, they confess every week, we believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Protestant churches confess that they are part of the Catholic Church. And in some ways, the real offense of the, the claim of the Roman Church is that they say they are the whole Catholic Church. They are the Catholic Church. There is no genuine church outside of them. But in its fundamental meaning, the Catholic Church means the real church. The other word you need to understand is the word reformation. To reform something means to get rid of all the bad habits. Say that you've got into the habit of having a Mars bar for breakfast every day. This is not healthy. It's not good for your body. It's not good for your teeth. And so you decide one day, I'm going to sort that out. And so you throw out all your Mars bars and you go and buy a big bag of apples. And you say, I'm going to have a bad apple every day for my breakfast instead of a Mars bar. That, that's a reformation. You have reformed your ways. So the, the Reformation, when we say there was a Reformation in 1517, what we mean is that the church, the real church, the Catholic church, was trying to sort out 
all that, that mess that had built up over the years. And you need to understand these two words, Catholic and Reformation, because the key thing to understand about this part of the church history, from about 1100 to 1500, is that this whole period is a period when they were trying to reform the church. Because everybody knew the church was a mess. There are lots of genuine, believing, faithful followers of Christ, and they look around them and they say the church is a mess. There's corruption. You can buy jobs in the church. We're all wrapped up in politics and governments and in wars. We know the church is a mess. That's the single most important thing to understand about this period of time. It is a prolonged attempt to reform the church. One historian says that there are two dominant themes, and one of them are the efforts inspired by the papacy, inspired by the papacy, to reform the church. They knew this wasn't right. And one of the things that we really need to understand to learn from this is why they kept on failing. How can you spend 400 years trying to fix something and it's still broken? You see, we can look at this time, the time of the rise of what we would call the modern Roman Catholic Church, and we simply, we can sneer at it. We can assume they're all evil, wicked, politically motivated, greedy people. And to be sure, there were a lot of wicked, evil, greedy, politically motivated people there. But there were also genuine believers. All the reformers were members of the Catholic Church, desperately trying to make it better. And if we just write off this whole period of history with us just the, the Catholics, that's somebody else's problem, we won't learn. We'll make the same mistake. Because see, the fundamental thing they did wrong for those 400 years trying to fix the church is they didn't understand what was wrong. For them, the fundamental problem, they thought the church is too weak. This is why princes and kings have so much influence. This is why we can't stop heresy from bubbling up inside the church. We are too weak. We must be stronger. This whole period in the church is a period in which the church, we need to be stronger. That's how we can sort things out. And you and I, we need to understand that and remember that because there's lots of people in the church today who do the same thing, isn't there? A lot of people say, you know, that what we need is to get some Christian politicians. But what we need is to have influence in Westminster or in Stormont, make sure the right laws get passed. And if we have strength there, then Christianity will be safe in our country. There are churches in America and they say, the only way to be safe is to build enormous churches. 10,000 people showing up on Sunday morning. Because if we're big and we're strong, then we're going to be safe. That's exactly the mistake they made for 400 years. And it doesn't work. Paul reminded us long ago in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 27. He says, God deliberately chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose weak things to shame the strong, not to be strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. But in these centuries, from the the 12th to the 16th century, they forgot that. They were afraid to be weak. And they said, we must be powerful. 
And there are at least three ways in which the, the church tried to acquire power that I want to talk about briefly tonight. They, they tried to acquire the power of, of papal supremacy, and I'll explain what I mean by that. They tried to acquire the power of military supremacy. This is an age in which the church went to war. And they tried to acquire the power of sacramental supremacy. So three, three kinds of power that they thought would make them safe. That they thought would help them reform the church. They thought the first about papal supremacy. What's a pope? Does anybody know what a pope is? Not a trick question. A pope is a bishop. He's a very important bishop, but he's he's a bishop. Does anybody know what a bishop is? Another word for bishop is overseer. Most modern translations of the Bible translate it as overseer. He's someone who looks after a church. In the New Testament, there was he would just look over a single church. Because in the New Testament. There are three words that mean basically the same thing. Elder, pastor, and bishop, or overseer. But they all mean the same job. It's kind of the way that uh, a carpenter and a joiner and a woodworker, they all do the same thing. It's three names for the same job. They all make things out of wood. I'm a bishop. I help oversee a local church in Carrie Duff. And I'm also an elder and I'm a pastor because those three words, they all describe one job. Elder describes what we are. We're supposed to be mature in the faith. Pastor describes what we do. We look after sheep because pastor is just an old word for shepherd. And overseer or bishop, it describes how we do it because we oversee what is taught and, and what goes on in the church. But see, here's the thing. From the very beginning of the church, there was a tendency to move from that model of the New Testament where you had a, a collection of men all on the same level in each local church to concentrate power in the hands of fewer and fewer people. If somebody thought, you know, it'd be a really great idea if, you know, we have all these elders, but, but if one was like the top elder, you know, we give him the authority that he could get things done. He wouldn't have to have all these endless conversations with the other elders. We put one guy in charge in our local church. And they tended to use the word pastor for just that guy. So you had the pastor and then just, just the other elders. They were below him. And then it seemed like, wouldn't it be a really great idea if the top elder in each of these churches, if we said one of them is in charge of all the churches in the area. So he's in charge not just of one church, but of a, a whole bunch of churches. And they said, well, we'll use this word bishop or overseer. That, that's him. See, so if the, the bishop is over a bunch of churches, and each church you've got the pastor who's over the other elders, and they're all over the people. And you're starting to get a bit of a tree growing. And then they said it would be a great idea if we had somebody over all the bishops. And they'd run out of Bible words, so they, they called him an archbishop. And they kept on going. If we can get more and more power in the one man's hands, that one man can achieve a very great deal. And so they, over the archbishops, they put cardinals, and then... By the 6th or 7th century, there's, there's basically five guys who run the whole church in the whole world. And they're called patriarchs. And one of them was the bishop in Rome, who had the nickname of Pope, which just means Papa, it means Father. And then they had the idea, it would be a great idea if there was one guy in charge of the whole church in the whole world. Uh, and the bishop in Rome thought it would be a really great idea if it was him. 
And what you have to remember is most of these men are really good, holy, well-meaning men. They honestly think, if I can just get some power, I can fix things. I can stop the sins. But they, they kept thinking, like some people today, if I just had more power, if you trusted me with more power, then we would sort the problem out. And that had been going on for more or less from the second century. What changes in this period from the 1100 to 1500 is that instead of just concentrating all the power inside the church, they said, actually, you know, we need power outside the church too. Because this is what they said, that you know, the, the kings and princes have got too much influence in the church. The way to fix that is if we need more power than kings and princes. We need to be have a papal supremacy, not only inside the church, but a papal supremacy over the whole world. One historian, Thomas Asbridge, he says this, that the thinking was the only way to break the stranglehold enjoyed by emperors and kings over the church was for the Pope finally to realize his God-given right to supreme authority. He wanted papal supremacy. Never occurred to him that the real problem might be there's already too much power concentrated in the hands of far too few people. So in 1058, for the first time, a pope wasn't simply just anointed as a bishop. He was crowned like a king. Pope Nicholas II was actually that a crown made and they crowned him like a king, a king of the church. Then beginning with Pope Gregory VII in 1073, the popes began to openly pursue political supremacy. They began to say, we should be able to tell kings what to do. We should be able to tell emperors and princes. And the papal office started to become much more like a, like a royal office. Gregory literally required all the other bishops to kiss his feet. It's not a figure of speech. He said the bishops had to get down in the big robes and the hands and feet. And they would kiss the toe of his shoe. There's still statues of some of the popes and the toe was polished, shining, because people still kiss it. And this really comes to its head with a guy called Pope Innocent III. He, he was Pope in the early 13th century. And he was arguably the greatest king. This is the high point of this political papal supremacy in the history of this time. This is what he said about himself. This is Innocent III's own words about him. He says, the successor of Peter, because this is what the bishops of Rome consider themselves to be. He is the vicar of Christ. He has been established as a mediator between God and man. He is below God, but he is beyond man. He is less than God, but he is more than man. He will judge all and be judged by none. That's terrifying. That's almost claiming God-like power. Nobody judges me. I judge everybody. This is literally what he thought. And he had two great weapons. Excommunication and something called the interdict. Excommunication, you may have heard of. It is, it's a biblical practice. You find it in 1 Corinthians. Because there are times when someone sins and they refuse to repent and the church has to put them out. That's called excommunication. But when the church started to have want to have more power than countries, they, they invented a kind of super excommunication. The excommunication of entire countries. If the Pope put a country under interdict, every church in the country closed. There were no church services, there were no masses, there were there were no confessions. No one in the country could be baptized. They wouldn't even bury the dead. 
This is how the popes waged war. There's no biblical justification for the interdict. It's a purely diplomatic weapon. In the year 1205, Pope Innocent III put England under interdict for six years. For six years, no one was given a Christian burial in England. Bodies just piled up or were buried in fields. And it was because King John, he, he wanted to appoint his own Archbishop of Canterbury. He thought, I, I'm the king. I should pick the bishop. And the Pope said, no, I, I picked the bishop. And after six years, John gave up. And he appointed the Pope's man as the Archbishop of Canterbury. This is the Pope's way of waging war. And it's not an insulated incident. Innocent III put the Kingdom of Leon under interdict between 1198 and 1204. He put Normandy under interdict in 1199. He did it again to Normandy in 1203. He did it to France in 1199 and 1204. This is his stick with which he beats kings. All the while trying to purify the church. This is what he's trying to do. He thinks this is how we will make the church pure of secular influence. But the more power they got, the more they tended to forget what the gospel actually is. Because the gospel isn't about becoming powerful, is it? After all, how did Jesus save us? Jesus saved us by setting aside power. By setting aside glory. By coming down from a crown to be born as a helpless baby. And finally allowing wicked men to crucify him. You couldn't get further from seeking more power. But this, this centralization of papal authority, it, it wasn't the only way to acquire power. One writer has said this is the way the, the Pope waged war. But in this period of church history, there was also a far more crude and literal way they waged war. Because they all didn't just want papal supremacy, they, they came to seek military supremacy. Because this is the period in which they invented the crusade. The 11th to 15th centuries are the centuries of, of crusading. And crusading isn't just a, a political thing. The crusading isn't just a Christians versus Muslims thing. Crusading is a huge change in the theology of the church. See, from, for centuries, Christians had, from time to time, make journeys to the Holy Land, to Israel, because they wanted to see the places where these things happen. There's nothing wrong with that. People still do that. They want to see Jerusalem. They want to see Bethlehem. But many Christians, they started to think, well, this is really, really hard. God will be desperately impressed if I do this. And they started to think, well, actually, maybe God will forgive me my sins if I go to Jerusalem. And so it became very, very important the problem is that ever since the 7th century, Jerusalem and the Holy Land had been held by Muslims. And from the 7th to the, the 10th century, usually it was okay that they could negotiate, they were allowed to go, they could visit. In the 10th century, a, a new wave of, of Muslims came to part in Turkey, what is today Turkey. And they were very, very zealous. And they made it much, much harder for Christians to go on pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And Pope Urban II came up with this idea. Well, we should take Jerusalem back. It shouldn't be in the hands of these, these unbelievers. And he instituted the first crusade to retake Jerusalem. The church literally declared war. They used this political influence that they had been gathering over these years in, in the search of papal supremacy to actually make an army to go and murder a bunch of Muslims. 
The word crusade comes from cruce signatus, which means marked by the cross. They did this under the symbol of the cross on which Christ died. In abject weakness for our sins, they decided they would make that a symbol of how in power they would slaughter their enemies. But as I say, this is a, this was a huge change. Historically, very few Christians have ever been complete pacifists. Some groups like Quakers are complete pacifists. They, they refuse to fight entirely. But usually, for the first thousand years of the church, it was acknowledged that if you did have to go to war, it was a necessary evil. There's a, there are rules for, for just war. Augustine in the fourth century first came up with these rules. He says that you can only go to war if it's for a just cause. You, Christians should not go to war just to get more power or more land. It has to be a last resort. You have to have tried everything else. It has to be declared by a proper authority. You know, I, I just can't get a bunch of people and decide I'm going to go to war. It has to have a reasonable chance of success. And, and you mustn't use excessive means. You can't just nuke them all and kill everybody. These are the, the ways in which you might have a just war. But here's the thing. For the first thousand years, even if a Christian went on a just war, he was considered to have sinned. He had to repent of it because he killed people. It was necessary, but it was a necessary evil. In 1066, the year is familiar, hopefully. 1066, the Battle of Hastings. William the Conqueror invades England. But he slaughters so many people in, in the, the Battle of Hastings. It's absolute carnage. That even though he, he executed that war with the permission of the Pope, afterwards the Pope rebuked him. He says, you have committed a, a sinful slaughter. And he had to build as an abbey. You can still see the ruins of it there. He had to build an abbey as an act of repentance to show that he was sorry for the slaughter he had committed. Warfare is inherently wrong in the first thousand years, even if sometimes it's necessary. But what began to happen, what the, the teaching began to change was that, well, perhaps we can use war and it's not wrong. It starts in the 8th and the ninth centuries. Whenever the, the Germanic peoples were converted to Christianity, the Germanic people, they liked going to war. They were a warlike people. And some of the bishops started to say to themselves, these guys could be handy. Because there are places we can't take the gospel. There are countries where, where missionaries aren't allowed to go. Well, we could use some of these guys. They could conquer the place and then we can convert them. And, you know, it's the end justifies the means. Thomas Ashbridge, who is a historian of this period, he says bishops began sponsoring and even directing brutal campaigns of conquest and conversion against the pagans of Eastern Europe. By the turn of the millennium, it had become relatively common for Christian clergy to bless weapons and armor. And the lives of various warrior saints were being celebrated. These were excused as missionary wars. That's literally the word they used. This is a missionary war. This will open up the field for us to, to send missionaries to preach the gospel. But even then, it was still a bad thing, you know. But it's a necessary bad thing. But in the early 1080s, in the 11th century, Pope Gregory VII starts to make this vital change in doctrine in the church. He wrote that his supporters should fight and face the danger of the coming battle for the remission of their sins. In other words, far from being something for which they would have to do penance, he says, if you go on my war, 
This will be an act of penance. God will forgive you your sins, your other sins, if you go to war for me. And many, many people in the church totally disagreed with him. He says, this is not Christian. This is not right. It took a generation before that doctrine would be understood. It was the next pope. It was Urban II who actually managed to get a, 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 a crusade off the ground. But it happened in the face of the fall of Jerusalem and the rise of a, a new kind of fanatical Muslims. And in the face of fear and threat, the church decided we need power. Again, that happens today, doesn't it? The rise of a scary, fanatical form of Islam and a threat to the church. We're, we're shrinking, we're small, we're being scorned. What's the temptation? We need power. We take the same mistakes over and over again. And what this period of history shows us is that it didn't work. Because these crusades were an abomination. The first and the most successful crusade took Jerusalem on the 15th of July, 1099. And one of the soldiers who was there described what happens. This is an eyewitness. This is a man who's proud of this. He says, with the fall of Jerusalem and its towers, one could see marvelous works. Some of the pagans were mercifully beheaded. Others pierced by arrows plunged from towers. And yet others tortured for a long time were burned to death in searing flames. Piles of heads, hands and feet lay in the houses and streets. And men and knights were running to and fro over corpses. Marvelous works. Because he thought that proved that Christ is powerful. As if God needed his help. That's where a, a temptation to be powerful takes us. It's where it has taken the church in the past. And it's where it will take it again. If we have the same temptation. Because two things help corrupt the church. Centuries of absorbing the attitudes of the world towards violence. It's not really that bad. We can use it for some useful means. And then something that frightens us. When the church is afraid, it is most in danger of becoming corrupt. Can we absorb the culture around us? How many of us have watched John Wick? Or Liam Neeson and basically anything he's made in the last 10 years? It's great fun. But if you do it without thinking, you start to think, well, that is a good way to solve problems. You know, you don't need a court. We don't need to be careful. Just go and shoot somebody in the head. That starts to seem normal. That's what happened in the 8th and 9th centuries. I'm not saying you don't ever watch a Liam Neeson film again, but be careful what it does to you. Be careful the assumptions that you take from it. We absorb this attitude to violence and if we absorb that attitude to violence and then something comes along that scares us, we will start a crusade. It's in the human heart. This is the sinfulness of human nature. Because we keep forgetting we don't need to be powerful. We trust in the power of a powerful God. So Christians in these centuries in their well-intentioned efforts to reform the church, they pursued and acquired power in the form of, of papal supremacy within the church and even over secular powers. They pursued and acquired military supremacy in the form of the idea of crusade, a holy war that God likes and will forgive you your sins. And finally, they pursued the power of sacramental supremacy 
Sacrament is just a name for the physical rituals that Christians observe, the Lord's table and, and baptism. Although the church invented a bunch more over time. By the time of the Reformation, they had seven of them. But basically, it's these physical acts. But what began to happen is that the Catholic Church wanted power over salvation itself. And instead of a, a once-for-all work in the heart done invisibly by the Holy Spirit when we put our faith in Christ and he makes us a new creation and we are forgiven of our sins, the church came to believe that God's grace and mercy are not doled out through faith and a, a personal relationship between you and Christ, but through the church. They still believe in grace, but grace comes to you. An ounce at a time, a mass at a time, a confession at a time. The church will dispense grace to you. So you go to the church and, and baptism becomes not a celebration of what has happened when you received a representation of dying and being raised up out of the dead. Baptism, the waters of baptism literally gives you the new birth. You cannot be born again unless you're baptized. And the only person who can baptize you is a priest. You can only get grace week by week if you take the mass. And the priest must give the mass. The church had power over grace. The Lord's Supper, they believed that when the priest uttered the words of institution, the bread literally became the body and blood of Christ. And that you ate grace. And only the church could give you grace. Now some of these ideas, they've been popular for centuries. They've been floating around the edge of the church. But in 1215, in this time, a meeting of bishops from all over the world called the Fourth Lateran Council, they decided that from now on, transubstantiation, which this is this idea that the bread literally becomes the body of Christ, that's the only acceptable view. From 1215, if you believe anything else, you go to hell. The first canon of the Fourth Lateran Council says this, Christ's body and blood are truly contained in the sacrament of the altar under the forms of bread and wine. The bread and wine having been changed in substance by God's power into his body and blood. So that in order to achieve this mystery of unity, we receive from God what he received from us. And nobody can affect this sacrament except a priest who has been properly ordained according to the church's keys. Which, church, which Christ himself gave to the apostles and their successors. And again, this is done with the best of intentions. Because if we leave it to just anybody, they can just go to God. There will be heretics. There will be false teaching. We can't control what they think. We can't control what they do. So they have to come to us for salvation. The Fourth Lateran Council was convened, they said, to eradicate vices and plant virtues. To correct faults and reform morals. To remove heresies and to strengthen faith. To settle discords and establish peace. To get rid of oppression. And to foster liberty. And they still ended up completely perverting Christianity. Because this pursuit of power was not the answer. They spent 400 years trying to reform the church. And they failed. Because they thought the answer was power. So let me try and wrap this all up. In an attempt to reform the church... Christians made all of these mistakes. They tried to centralize power in the church into just one or two men. Then they became dependent upon physical coercion by the church. We have an army. We will kill those who deny us. 
And they externalize and, and ritualize salvation itself so that we can control it. Salvation comes through the physical institution of the church. But what we need to understand is that they fell into these errors thinking they were doing the right thing. That's what we need to learn from. Not laugh at them, not mock at them, not say this is the evil, this is the devil himself. These are people just like you and me. In 2 Corinthians 12, Paul recalled a time when he was desperately weak. He seems to have been unwell, unable to work. He, he could do nothing. And when he asked God to heal him, God refused to heal him. Because the truth is, the church is supposed to be weak. If there's one thing you remember about tonight, and I've said a whole lot of things, but if there's one thing you remember, remember this. The church is supposed to be weak. This is what God said to Paul. When he asked him, take away my weakness and make me strong again. He says, God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. When you're weak and you're in your class and you're the only Christian. And when they ask you questions and you don't know the answers. When you're afraid of what's going to happen in our, our society. Remember, you're not supposed to be strong. God's strength. Is made perfect when you feel weak. Every time the church has tried to be strong, it has destroyed the gospel. God's power is made perfect in our weakness. That's why Paul goes on to say, Therefore I boast all the more gladly about my weakness, so that Christ's power may rest in me. You don't need to be strong. You don't need to pretend that you never doubt. You don't need to pretend that you never sin. You need to be able to say, when I'm sinned, this is my sin. I need to talk to a Christian, a, a wiser, an older Christian, and help me with this. Because you don't have to pretend that you're stronger than you are. We are all weak. It is Christ who is our strength. His strength is made perfect when we accept that, when we understand that. When the church thinks she needs to be strong, what she's saying is that God's grace isn't sufficient. We also need an army. Instead of relying on God's strength, the church of these years that I've been talking about, they were doing everything to make their own strength perfect. It would never have occurred to Pope Innocent III to boast of his weakness. He didn't think he had any. That's what destroyed him. It would never have occurred to the soldiers who, who took the cross to boast about their weakness. Because they thought God was delighting in their strength as they massacred the infidel. God doesn't need you to be strong because he is all the strength you need. That's why the Reformation in 1517 worked. Because that Reformation was about giving away power. They decentralized power in the church by doing away with the idea that the Pope was supreme. They disavowed physical violence by the church. Martin Luther criticized the Crusades severely. He says, Christ does not govern the kingdom of God with the sword. Nor can the gospel be defended with force. We're supposed to be weak. And they deny that these external symbols of mass, the confession, and the other sacraments are the power that saves. Salvation comes through faith. The weakest thing in the world. Because that's what faith is. Faith is weakness. Faith is not strong. People talk about you have a strong faith. It's a contradiction in terms. Faith is saying, I can't do this. I need someone else to do it for me. And the person I trust is Christ. Strength 
our strength is never what we're supposed to be looking for. The church is supposed to be weak. That's when God's strength is made perfect in us. Does anybody have any questions? I'm happy with questions, but maybe you have no questions. I have one. Okay. Um, obviously, I'm maybe going to answer it myself with my own question. I hope not. That's good. That's less work for me. <laughs> but whenever you talk about, about the political power and where the church is going to try and take over kings, I kind of look at similarities now where you think of the uh, Supreme Court hmm? uh, yeah. a couple of years ago, where I can't remember the name of this injured lady, but she's a Christian yeah. or. I don't know. I don't know her personally. Actually, I don't know. But I know her background is on the court. On the court, one of the Supreme Court. One, one of the Supreme Court. Yeah. So she was elected, and it almost seemed in American politics anyway. Like yeah. this is this is it. Like yeah. the conservative side have that perspective of here we're free because she kind of was brought the balance back yeah. a little bit. The conservative side. Um, I was really drawn note to that and said, "There's an example. that's really worked well. Help with the abortion laws yeah. and stuff in, in the states recently." Sorry, I actually close them off again, but my question is then, should Christians then not go for political power at all, or should we? I, no, I don't think the Christians should stay out of politics. Daniel is a politician. Daniel helps run an entire empire. The problem is when we think we have to go into politics because politics will save us. The church... Christians get involved in politics because we think they need our help. And they desperately do. They need the truth we have. They need the moral morality that we can teach them. Whenever a Christian goes into the, into public life, when a Christian goes into politics, it is to help the world, not to seek help for himself. Does that make sense? Yeah. Christian and politician is going to give, not to get. Pope Innocent III needed to get political power. But what we know is every politician, every ruler, every prime minister needs the gospel. Our country needs the gospel. So a person goes into politics to give, not to take. Anybody else? Okay. Well, let me pray. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the supremacy of your power. And we thank you that your power is made perfect in weakness. We are stunned at how you showed this to us in your son, setting aside all glory, setting aside all power, allowing himself to become completely helpless and being made a sacrifice once for all offered for our sins. We thank you, Father, for what Jesus Christ has done. And we pray that we might have the wisdom to follow in his footsteps, that we might, as Paul says, have that same mind that was in Christ Jesus. That even as he entrusted himself to you, his Father, we pray, Lord, that every one of us will entrust ourselves to you. That we will not seek our own power, but they will trust in your power. For your power is perfect, and your power is made perfect in our weakness. So, Lord, be with us and protect us, protect the churches that we are a part of. Father, as we grow, may we bring that confidence and that truth to the churches that each one of us is a member of. We ask that you would fill us with an absolute confidence that Christ is all we need. 
His power is sufficient for every challenge and that we may simply obey him and walk humbly before him. We thank you for this time together tonight. Father, we thank you for the, the food that we can enjoy now. We ask that you will receive our thanks and that you would bless it. And that as we eat it, we would remember that this is the gift of our God, the provision of the powerful Lord who gives us all that we need. We ask this in Jesus' name.